Hello and welcome to Inexos Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co-hosting this series of podcasts with my Inexos nerd Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums, and oh, so much more. Well, hello, welcome to Access, Access All Areas, episode 90, the podcast that aims to dive deep into all things great about this band, have a bit of fun and banter with a community of like-minded individuals uh, and celebrate the music of NXS. Before we say hello to you, B, uh, that was a lovely little song you put on there for uh, the late Glenn, Whe- Glenn Wheatley, who passed away here in Australia overnight. And a lot of people around the world won't know of Glenn, but uh, they'll know of his exploits. And he, other than being one of the founding members of the band that played that song, uh, The Masters Apprentices, and what a great song it is, he uh, managed John Farnham, the Little River Band, he brought FM radio to Australia. Um, he was a real pioneer in the music management industry. Uh, a bit like uh, Michael Gadinsky, who we lost last year, and a bit like Chris Murphy, who we lost. So it's a bit of a sad time uh, with these passings, B. But I'll say hello, how are you? And thank you for pulling that song out. No worries, no worries. A beautiful song there, yeah. Um, I hear that he was the bass player of that um, group. Yes. Yeah, yes. and he found Delta Goodrum. At a very young age, and he was Probably, Delta's manager. Yeah, yeah no, and he was. Mm. Our friend of the podcast, Mark Opitz, posted a, a mm. really lovely little tribute today, and yeah. uh, about two guys out of Brizzy making it uh, their way in the music industry. That's and it was a great, right. great mm. photo of them in their in their youth. Mark yeah. was a good looking rooster in his day. He was, wasn't rooster. he? Still is. What you're talking about? Yeah, it was a great little pick there, and <laughs> you know, Australia is a sort of a, a big country, but it's a small industry, so. A lot of the people we speak to and reference often all know each other. Oh, so no, yeah. not surprising that Mark and Glenn had a pretty good sort of connection there. Yeah, yeah. So valet to Glenn, Glenn Wheatley. Wheatley. Great life. Um, but we should get into uh, what it is our core business is. And I'll ask you off the bat here, B. Uh, how's your excess week been? It feels again like we chat every day now and uh, we're interviewing people and putting things together and trying to make the show as best as we can be. Yes, it is, Hayden. I do feel like you're in my life nearly every day. <laughs> yep. I get a little a little bit withdrawn. I haven't spoken to Hayden today. Um, yeah, it was nice, wasn't it? We met up with somebody else who's very iconic in the Australian rock industry. Oh, my God, an absolute gorgeous rocker with a golden <laughs> heart, I would say. Correct. Well, we will uh, let listeners know who he is in a moment, but uh, it's a bit weird. Some people the other day were asking me, oh, what episode's out this week? And I lose a bit of track because as one's going out, the next one's coming in, and then there's often one I'm listening back to. So I sort of forget where we're up to. But what I can say is we're entering the 90s, and in cricketing terms, as Mark Opitz would know, in back cricketers, they get a bit nervous in the 90s mm. uh, on their way to scoring that 100. So let's just hope our next nine or ten podcasts aren't that nervous. I don't think so, do you? I'm just <laughs> Not, really enjoying them lately. Now, now, can I quickly give you a little compliment? You made me laugh yesterday, right? All right. Life is about, <laughs> yeah, life's about a time and a place. Now, I did happen to check out the uh, podcast from last week of, you know, have a quick little listen in at the start. And uh, I'm driving under the uh, Westfield sort of shopping town, town area here in Southland. I suddenly, you know, hear the, you know, the Bob Hawke, our prime minister, eulogising about NXS back in the 80s there and, Suddenly, out of nowhere, I'm hearing Australia, you know, a bogan sort of version of the word Australia, <laughs> and to the outcast song, Hey Ya. So I thought, kudos to that. I've never heard that before. But a lot of people have. I've never heard it. 
So, where did you pull that from? Oh, I have magic. Right. <laughs> I have a hat. Um, oh. Funny, wasn't it? It was really good. I loved it. Sounded it. very so, authentic. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I put, yeah, you, you might like that. I like putting little things in there for you. Little, little. Well, the little nuggets, nuggets here. I, I, look, I haven't even listened to the episode past that because, you know, I'm not that self-indulgent, but the, uh, it made me laugh. And then um, I guess for some people overseas, the way you abbreviated the word Australia, which is about four syllables to a typical <laughs> Aussie, Australia. two syllables, Australia, Australia. Uh, was quite clever. So well done to you. But uh, I guess overall, um, look, some of the feedback was pretty good. You know, like everything, everybody has, a, a you know, a, a view on things. And uh, I know a few guys uh, like Paul Jolly last week were like, yeah, it was good because, you know, I, I remember them, you know, seeing an Australian maid and we're going to go overseas for a couple of years and it sort of struck a chord with some of those people of probably my age and maybe pedigree of being here in Australia that had that part one in excess experience before the global stuff. And for those overseas who, as I said, jumped on halfway through their career uh, and you may not be as literate with the early stuff, uh, we hope it's prompted you to go back and, and dive deep. And there was a guy, I think I passed it on to you, but I don't know if you actually understood. You, you actually put there, I don't understand. I'm l- looking at the messages now, actually. <laughs> right. And his name, I can't even pronounce it because it's Swedish, but I'll have a go. John Smith. Ma- <laughs> I wish it would be better. Um, male- I get some easy names for you. Like it feels, I feel like you get I always get lambasted with these big I long do, names. I do, I yeah. do. Yeah. And anyway, his name is... <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce it. Uh, let's call him Mail. Mail Stolarski, and it's got about three I's and an L and an I again. How would you say that? Right. No way. We'll call anyway. him Alphabet. Yeah. Anyway, so very much. Thank you very much for this. There is so much to say, but you chose things to talk about with a lot of mastrata. Is that the word? And knowledge. So I wish you all the best. Oh, how nice. And so I looked it up. And it means a master's degree. So, mate, you've got a master's degree in this man's eyes of <laughs> in excess. Well, you know, when you get really busy and, and those little things come my way, and sometimes when you send messages to people, all of us do, we don't give context. So when I was sort of reading that just off the bat, I was like, I really know what's going on. I've got to get back to work. But uh, thank you for the kind comments anyway. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. So, look, yeah, we, we, we hope that sort of episode there does I said, give people a little bit of a reminder or an education. And, again, it was great some of the little flourishes of songs you put in. But I did hear the black and white one with uh, Michael at Selena's there. And, mm. um, again, you know, we hope, you know, these episodes prompt you, as I said, to go and YouTube stuff or download stuff or go back and purchase some things that you, you, you didn't buy in the past, like albums and things like that. And, more importantly, just enjoy, you know, the NXS experience and their career. So, yeah, that was our sort of our ode to NXS Australia. On Australia Day, so uh, I guess country-wise, but we've done the UK now, we've done America, we've done Australia. I'm very keen to get a, a Canada episode out. Yeah, that would be good. I'd like be to really hear good. that. Um, mm. a, I think a South American one would be great, given really the success good. they've had there. Mm. Um, mm. We might have an Asia or, or, or a, uh, a European one as well. So um, yeah, countries of origins and the NXS story. We will keep delivering those to you. Excess 
before? Well, it's been very busy, Hayden. I've been very busy and a little socialite, um, but I'll leave that to fun engagement to later. Mm. Um, apart from having a, like talking to a, a little rock god in midweek, um, I've also got uh, something important to say. Um, it came across on my desk, as you say. Mm. Something that I'd like to warn everybody that might be on Facebook. I'm not sure. Well, I I know it's happened on Instagram before now. Andrew had a fake account made up and was messaging people. Now, we already know that um, this had happened to John. And within minutes, it's happened to John and Gary. So there's somebody thinking they're on a bloody laugh, but they're not, um, making fake accounts of all our band members. So luckily I know nearly everybody. So I've got in touch and um, we're bringing that person down. Oh, you know who it is? I know people that can bring people down, put that way. Oh. <laughs> We've got B Goodfellas, uh, the Godfather here. She knows people. So uh, yeah. cue the Godfather music, B. I am. I am. <laughs> Don't mess with me. Someone's (laughs) going to wake up with a horse head in their bed, okay? Look out, bees on the case. CSI Coffs Harbour. CSI Coffs Harbour. There we go. It's a bit like that. uh, Look, look, these things are quite serious when people sort of... No, it was serious. ...identities. Yeah, Um, no, it's bad. I did try to find some levity in it by saying, I think on Andrew's uh, post, uh, or maybe Marlene, as I said, look... Gee, one more Ferris and we can open up an in excess covers band. Um, <laughs> so, so I hope they do that in the right way. Uh, I was trying to find some. But limits. it is serious, though, because I don't know. They're, they're asking people to message them um, yeah. personally. You know, like, don't, just don't. So if you see anything like that suspicious, in excess, I'm not going to ask you to message them personally. Look, I think George Tharagood said it best in the song lyric, get a haircut and get a real job. Mm. We'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Obviously, speaking of valuable people to the podcast, uh, it's time to welcome the patrons aboard. I'm not sure if we've got anybody new, B, but sadly, it does it give me the sadly emoji face? Uh, <laughs> not this week, no. All no, right, no. if you've been sitting on the fence for a while, you're listening, enjoying, put your hand in your pocket, sacrifice a cup of coffee, a pack of the cigarettes, Invest in this quest to get the band in the Hall of Fame and join us on the community run. Don't just listen. Help us out. Help, we'll help, we, we, I think we're helping you out. So, But anyway, let's uh, read out our most valuable people as it is, our patrons. Over to you, Michael. I'd like to say hello to everybody outside on the highway. Let's all say hello to everybody outside. It's about 10,000 people at least. Hello. Hello to our honorary members, Nick Egan, Mark Opitz, Cameron Adams and Mary Woods, and also to our gorgeous patrons, Sue D, Joe Robbins, Carmen, Laurie, Carrie-Anne, Danielle, Sarah Markram, Sarah Camia, happy birthday, Dr. Jim, Katie, Felicia, Lisa Mack, Lisa Calloway, happy birthday to you too, Anne-Marie, Susan P, Susan B, Foxy, Pedro, Mandy, Matt, Linda, Yvonne, Caroline, Amanda H, Amanda V, Leon, David, Tracy, Paul Jolie, Paul Boozy, Paul Buckley, Paul Bridges, Sandrine, Warren, Ella, Ryder, Tony, Erica, Abigail, Martin, Stefan, Val, Jim, Matey, Kelly, John, Jackie, Sean, Sheila, Shannon, Helen, Brett, Suzanne, Glenn, Laurel, Bard, Genevieve, Shelby, Manny, Laurie, Jill, Peter, Matthew, 
Leos, Lily, Jamie, Heidi, Paula, Lisa, Angie, and Michael. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. All right, Billy, well, we're very much uh, with rock and roll royalty today, uh, Australian rock and roll royalty. And, and you know what, we, you know, global rock and roll royalty because he has a fan base overseas, albeit smaller, but uh, no less important. Oh, very important. We are very, very uh, proud to announce we have Richard Clapton on the show today. And Richard, as a lot of you do know, was the producer behind Underneath the Colours and the uh, the Love One and has had his own uh, fantastic career in its own right. And we do look forward to chatting to him because uh, he's got sort of, I think it's 50 years next year, he will have been in the rock and roll industry. And I know he has very healthy memories of the earlier days, B, and, but he's still eager you, can, you know, to get out there and play music live and contribute something. We will go through in a moment, but Richard has just had his highest ARIA charting album in the history of his career in the last six months, which uh, nationally went, went, I think, to number three. And it was, you know, to say that it's a covers album was probably being literate, but uh, it's probably a reinterpretation of songs based on the 1966 to 1970 uh, period. And we've got some fantastic songs uh, that uh, over the course of, we think it's a two-part episode, we will share with you about Richard. More importantly, though, B, he does really dive deep with us and is going to dive deep heavily about his time with excess. And I think overall, you know, we, we sense just the genuine friendship that still exists to this day. Yeah, especially with John. I didn't yeah. know any of that. So anyway, I won't spoil. Don't give him spoil alerts. <laughs> but yeah, so don't worry. Just sit back. Really enjoy this because there's some absolutely gorgeous things to um, know yeah. about Richard. Yeah, absolutely. great career. All right. What's the time for, B? It's time for the news. Hi, it's Dave from England, and you're listening to In Excess Access All Areas with Hayden and B. And now it's time for the news. All right, B, out of the blocks, great news. The charts are out, In Excess are having a surge, B. No. Okay, they slipped out of the charts to 51, but they've had a bit of a bullet back in. And it must be thank you to Michael uh, because they've surged to number 32. Oh, nice one. Yeah, 19 thank you, spots. Everybody. Yeah, but, you know, let's get this up high because there is, look, there is uh, some infamy this week at number one in the Australian rock charts in Australia. Now, just a question without notice, who do you think it might be? No idea. You don't have to guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> this album last week, B, I've never seen anything like this. This album last week was 336 in the charts. Right. And this week it's number one. What? Meatloaf, bad, bad out of hell. Oh, oh. Course, yeah, so no, it went good. from 336 to number one. It's a bit like a when someone passes away, like a painting, the the, mm. the, the, the painter, everybody demands the uh, you know, the 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 output. So, I must uh, admit, I don't know, I don't own that album. I bet my little boy would like that. I might get well, it. Well, it's gone mm. 25 times platinum in Australia. Now, that works oh. out to roughly about two and a half million copies, which means Ooh. about one in 10 households in Australia have it. Wow, so no accounting for bad taste, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> congratulations, meet. More sleep speed till February 10th, where Boom Crash Opera support John Stevens and the NXS collection in Melbourne. And I'm going. Are you going to go? I hope it doesn't get cancelled. I secured a ticket with a friend and we're heading off to there on February the 10th. So I'm looking forward to that. 
uh, and that'll be a great night out. I'm really looking forward to seeing Boom Crash Opera. So you may not know a lot of their stuff, but uh, they uh, were probably rivals to Noiseworks at the time and uh, uh, were probably almost a, a bit of an in excess sort of influence band too. So looking forward to having them uh, as the support band to John. Are you going to get right down the front and hold his hand when he says... Yes, uh, and also, Boo, your little famous Hoey Moey gig, I've just found out that it's been rebooked there, so I know we missed out for you uh, last week. It's not the Hoey Moey. What's it called? Yeah, well, the, well it is called, there is one called the Hoey Moey, and that's where the other band were playing, but Don't Change are at the Mooney Tavern. Well, this is the like, this is the, 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 the Live Baby Live guys. So oh, they're... they're- <gasps> Oh, yeah, I didn't they, miss them. I thought I missed them. No, they've been rescheduled to May 29th now. I can make that. Four o'clock in the afternoon. I can make that. Yeah, mm. that's a very user-friendly mum time, that's isn't great. it? It's a great yeah. time. Yeah. You, you oh. can get plastered and have the kids drive you home. That's how good it is. <laughs> All right. May's um, going to be busy, hey? Correct. Um, also, too, uh, in the last week, I think you alerted me to this, but there is the Triple M Great Aussie Songbook, and you said something, I think, of the other week about there's a bunch of nominations of Australian songs and they're putting this famous sort of songbook together and mm-hmm. maybe in excess had 16 nominations for this songbook. And uh, it has artists as wide ranging as ACDC and the Saints and uh, Powderfinger and, you know, Richard Clapton and all these particular bands and artists, but uh, it has finally been released uh, in the last 24 hours. Oh. And just do get three songs on this album, which uh, I guess they are Never Tear Us Apart, Original Sin and Don't Change. Okay. But if you are wanting to dive deep on Australian music, you should go to the Triple M Great Aussie Songbook because there are some fantastic songs mm. uh, littered across 40 years, uh, 50 years, uh, and there's uh, some great, you know, uh, bands who have been added to that along with NXS. So kudos to the band, which is exciting, uh, getting those tracks uh, voted onto there. So will that become a Spotify list maybe? Uh, maybe. It's probably going to be released yeah. somehow or it's yeah. going to be on the Triple M site or something like that. That'd but there's a whole there's a whole list of the songs there um, yeah. and most of them are deserving in that sort of nomination or selection. Uh, speaking of Triple M, there's also, as we said last week, The Vault uh, with uh, a lot of in excess interviews that have just sort of been uh, released uh, into this thing called The Vault. Uh, there was stuff with Michael last week for about nine, ten minutes. This week, there's some stuff with uh, Gary Beers, our friend, and Tim uh, in 1983-84 talking about the big gig in Narara, which was this big outdoor festival gig yeah. uh, that was very pivotal in the early days around the swing era. Uh, and the interview goes for 15 minutes and 15 seconds. So I think everyone, go dive deep on it. It's a really yeah. fascinating walk down memory lane there. Last week, I think it was uh, the Wembley gig uh, put out on BBC Four uh, last week. I think you said there was some. Uh, was uh, it the Mystify? I think it was Mystify, wasn't it? Was it the I Wembley think, gig? I, oh, I, 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 I was I'm Wembley. Getting, 
Oh, okay. Perhaps it because was Wembley. Twitter, Twitter this week, there's been a lot of you know great feedback and posts about that gig. Mm. Uh, and it was like, oh, it's great to not have another Queen concert on BBC4 because I was sick of it. So, But, yeah, there's been some great feedback just from people reminiscing on that. So it's good to know that both in America there's the concert series for that and there's been the recent stuff in Australia and now there's stuff in Europe. So it's keeping that gig alive along with what we do to try to keep that gig alive as well. That's right. But, B, that's all the news I have. Okay. Hey, this is Tim Farris. Big shout out to Hayden and B. Also, want to say hello to all the listeners and NXS fans. Thanks for listening. I love you, Hayden and B. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. This is Ella from Middleburg, the Netherlands. You're listening to In Excess, Access All Areas with Hayden and B. And now it's time for the topic of the week. Well, you know, we're in for a treat today, B. We've actually got uh, one of the icons of Australian music who has had a very influential effect on our favourite band, In Excess. Uh, Richard Clapton's going to be joining us just in a moment. I'm going to dive deep on, you know, his career and, and importantly, his influence and his uh, association with In Excess. Just a bit of background knowledge, you know, Richard was a young guy at 18 or 19, decided to go to uh, Germany and England and sort of forge away in music and spent a number of years over there just learning his craft and being part of the, uh, the, the rock scene and the pop scene at that time. Uh, he came back to Australia after four, five, six years overseas and then proceeded to sort of forge out a, a fantastic uh, singer-solo career here. Um, iconic songs like Girls on the Avenue, Capricorn Dancer, uh, Glory Roads, uh, deeper Water, um, along with, you know, many, many hits uh, that, uh, you know, have sort of become staples on our radio station. So um, we, as we promote in excess, like to also give acknowledgement to our guests who uh, also release great music and Richard stands the test of time with what he's done. So I guess we're going to roll over to a two-parter, B, and uh, welcome our f- new friend of the podcast, uh, Richard Clapton. So over to you guys. So, Richard, this is Hayden. Hayden, this is Richard. Hi, Hayden. G'day, Richard. How are you? Very, very thankful you could give up some of your time on a Sunday for us. No, that's okay. (laughs) I've just had six gigs cancelled. So, like I said to Richard, I have oodles of time. So, part of Australia, are you? Oh, Sydney, where I've always been. Yeah, I did a little bit of digging. I'm in Melbourne. I think you may have had a little sojourn down to here early in your career. I lived in the Gold Coast for five years in the hinterland which was great. And I think Melbourne was about 1976, early 1977, I think, just be, just before Goodbye Tiger, I was in Melbourne. I thought I'd uh, do a little bit of backdrop for you here. Um, you may or may not know much about our podcast, but what we'd love to, love to do today, obviously it's an in-excess theme, but uh, from a format point of view, we thought, well, we've got a few listeners from overseas who may not know your material, although we do know you spent some time overseas and have had some good experiences there. So we'd like to bring some of those listeners up to speed just about your credentials, hopefully. Highlight also your new album, which I think just charted, I think, the highest charting album for you in your career, which is, I guess, a big congratulations on that. Yes, except for COVID. It's just a touring, isn't it? Yeah, it zoomed to number one and COVID hit. Yeah, so there's no stock in the stores for nearly two months. Right. Okay. So it, it should have been higher. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It was number one, but, yeah. you know, 
it would have been be- it would have been great if it had stayed there for a few weeks. But yeah, um, yeah, which I guess touring consolidates, you know, chart figures. I guess over time, and um, uh, I guess the the second part of what we'll talk about today is to sort of do the crossover with excess and everything that's sort of related to that. B and I have done this sort of deep dive into their career uh, over the last uh, eighty nine weeks or ninety weeks, and it's been a bit of a labour of love in. Um, I guess sort of helping them get some acknowledgement towards the Hall of Fame and secondly, maybe rewrite a few cliches and a few wrongs that maybe have plagued every artist's career where, you know, maybe media or rumour innuendo doesn't quite match up to the facts. Uh, I'm sure you've gone through that in your career where um, there's one version and there's the actual version. I've enjoyed your interviews over the years, especially, you know, your references, and we won't go into today about your Bob Dylan concert experience because I think you've told that story oh, a lot of times. Yeah. You know, I think for, for our listeners uh, who, uh, you know, know you through Underneath the Colours, you know, what we wanted to do was just just bring them up to speed a little bit that as a 51-year-old man here in Australia who, who grew up, you know, really in the, the late 70s and early 80s, you couldn't sort of go anywhere without hearing your material. <laughs> song in uh, 1982 I'm an Island which uh, you know I was it was an earworm in my ear as, uh, as a kid on holidays at Eildon Weir but you know going back in time for those listeners for us you know because our podcast thankfully is going out to about 60 70 countries we've got quite a good audience who are listening in and you know we we think you know we'd love to give a plug to some of your material and Mm. For those who don't know, one of the things we've tried to do as a sort of a sideline on this podcast is, you know, in excess we're Australian, but, you know, Australia's been a bit of a hidden gem of rock and roll music over the journey where not all of it translated overseas in terms of chart success and, you know, maybe in excess the Bee Gees, the Living Newton-John, ACDC, some of those acts who went over and made it globally. There's so much so much great material here. And just a, a quick snapshot, if I may, we've got Girls on the Avenue, Goodbye Tiger, Capricorn Dancer, I Am an Island, Deep Water, Glory Road, which is my personal favourite, Fishies of Our Lives, Lucky Country, Blue Bay Blues. These were songs that still get, you know, some really good airplay now and are, are real probably staples in your career, I guess. Uh, yes. Well, as you're aware, I mean, I sort of um, partnered up with In Excess you know, in 1980. Hmm. So before we even did Underneath the Colours, um, Johnny had already played on half of that Great Escape album. So yep. you know Johnny's playing on I'm an Island. Yes, yes. So yeah. how did you meet Johnny in the beginning then? Because um, he would have been very young then. Johnny was, I think Johnny was 17. Yeah. Um, if, I, if my memory serves me well. But I, um, I had a second home in Berlin for many years, for decades. And when, when life here was getting me down, I used to run off to Europe. Um, especially to Berlin. So this time I'd been in Berlin for about eight months. I returned on that really long flight and this night I was really buggered and, you know, I'm really badly jet-lagged. And Chris Murphy called me up and he was raving and raving about he just, um, while I'd been away, he'd found this band and he wanted me to come and see them at the Paddington Green Hotel. Paddington Green is in Paddington, Sydney. I, I just kept trying to fog him off and, and say, look, you know, I'll catch them some other time. 
But um, I'm sure you've heard all about Chris and you don't say no to Chris. No. <laughs> he just wouldn't take no for an answer. Oh, man. Danny tells me they're going to be on at 1 a.m. I said, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I dragged my feet down to the Paddington Green and honestly, there was nobody there, just Chris Murphy and me and nine local drunks. <laughs> it was the only place they could get a beer after midnight. And I just, you know, I looked at Chris and went, oh, thanks, thanks so much for this. You know, standing in a big empty venue. And honestly, the boys came out at one o'clock and, like, I just – I just didn't have the vibe prior to this. And as soon as they started playing, it just blew me away. And by this stage, I had been a professional musician for about 12 to 15 years. And if you ended up in in gigs where nobody showed up or you only, you know, had 20 people or something, a short set's a good set, but not in excess. They, um, and they played with this passion and panache, which is usually the description I use about this gig that I just couldn't believe, and I was just a dead gobsmacked. So after they came off, I went into the dressing room to meet them, and we sort of hit it off, like, instantly. Um, uh, because, well, the background of that is I had done this album called The um, Dark Spaces, and it was the first album of mine I produced myself. And in excess, even though they didn't, they'd never met me before, they were really enamoured with... Um, dark spaces. They liked the sound of it. They liked the musical approach I'd taken with it. before would I give it a go so we got into where my studios in Sydney and we did the love one uh, I'm not sure if it was this one or the album this session or the album I think it was the love one and you know how nowadays they have click tracks and everything yeah hmm. there'd be no click tracks so no time synchronization prior to this and I was, this is when I first not just met Johnny but worked with Johnny and and it was like this <laughs> just horrible click jeers. <laughs> he had about one and a half goes and he ripped the headphones off and fell against the wall and said, fuck this. <laughs> and, um, yeah. But anyway, so we did the loved one um, and it, I can't remember where it got to, but it was pretty good. Well, you yeah. better than I do. Yeah, it went top 20. I think it was a, a really interesting yeah. decision to do something between the first and the second album just to keep their name out there and a, as a sort of a, you know, a lot of, a lot of young artists will put a cover out quite early in their career. That was a unique choice, but a great song and a great version.
I know. I mean, In Excess were already flavour of the month because, you know, because of the first album, which was really, you know, I mean, indie alternative, I suppose, mm-hmm. before its time. And uh, so they already had an audience. The Love One really went really well and um, because it just seemed to work. We had a good working relationship. Then they asked me to do their album, their second album. Um, I think in between that, I had already started The Great Escape and I just thought Johnny was the most amazing drummer mm. and not just me, but most people all over the world still think Johnny's the most amazing drummer. Mm. Um, so Johnny's, as I said, Johnny's on about half of my Great Escape album. That's prior to me doing the, you know, um, Underneath the Colours. Underneath the Colours was, it was a trip. It was pretty out there. No, because I'd done an album in LA um, about three years prior to this and I really loved um, Alex, the American engineer that I'd used because uh, Alex Alex is an amazing engineer. I, I don't know. Look, I really so miss those days. Mm. I mean, decadence. I'll tell you about decadence. <laughs> <laughs> that was like, you know, when Jack Black says in School of Rock, you know, it really used to mean something. I mean, rock music, it really was. It was more than an institution. It was a way of life. It was cultural, wasn't it? You know? mm. Yeah. And believe yeah. me, we were, we were living it to the full. <laughs> we got to the point where in the early start of the album, they kept having their girlfriends and hangers-on come in. And because I'd never produced before and, you know, I'd, under duress, I bought an, an engineer out from America, which was pretty expensive for their then record company and stuff. I was trying to be responsible. and I, So I gave them a big lecture and I said, look, because it's like a bunch of school kids. I right. said, no, yeah. look, okay, here's the deal. No more guests, all right? Just closed sessions, and I promise. When we do Underneath the Colours, because Underneath the Colours, I think it's only two chords. I'm pretty sure I'm right. So I thought, here's the deal. And when we do Underneath the Colours, I promise you can do anything you want. (laughs) (laughs) And they they did. (laughs) Yeah, they were good boys, and we did really sensible, serious work. And then it came time to do Underneath the Colours, and... Man, that party, that was the party to end all parties. And, like, now when you listen to that track, bear that in mind. I will now, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's an example of how wild it was because uh, this may be a bit technical for you and and the people watching this podcast, but back in those days, so you've heard in the old studios, there were big, big two-inch machines, you know, big two-inch tape. That tape is called Ampex 456. And that's where you got that beautiful analog sound. Um, but what we didn't realise that they 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 shipped Ampex four five six out from the states on on ships on big ships. And what would happen is if if the salt air got in into the, the chemicals in the tape, it would you know affect the tape. Oh. So anyway. The night we did underneath the colours and Alex was staying at my place in the eastern suburbs in Sydney and, I mean, I felt like death. So Alex went on a couple of hours before me and he called up. He said, Richard, you've got to come in here right now, man. This is bad. <laughs> I went, oh, gee, what did we do? Anyway, I went into my studios and they were all there. Um, you know, the managers of the studios and boy, oh boy, if looks could kill. So there's a picture of this big, highly expensive tape recorder and we'd left the tape against the tape heads and it had eaten away the tape heads. Oh, no. <laughs> so I was very unpopular over that. Boy, did I get a caning over that. 
Oh. I, I didn't know what to do. But then the bastards told me they actually had some spare ones down in the basement in the same building. <laughs> and look, some of, our, some of our listeners were probably part of the, the Betamax or the VHS recording system when we did that with their own videotapes and they got tangled in their, in their respective players. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yeah, tape was, tape was a lot of fun. Then I went out on a three-month tour and Chris Murphy and my, my then manager decided because, I, I mean, I, was, I, my, I had a pretty big profile. You know, I, could, I was a big draw card in those days. So they came out as my support act. Um, <laughs> and they were naughty, weren't they, according to you? Didn't we have Kirk on the other day and said that they actually came on stage? And, oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Well, what about, <laughs> is this about Kempsey, Bridget? Yes, I think it is about Kempsey. <laughs> it wasn't me. That was Michael Hutchins. All oh, right. Well, tell our listeners then. Tell our listeners. <laughs> I mean, Johnny sort of defended me like a big brother because, he, like I said, he was 17. He was just a kid. I mean, we ended up living together for a lot during the 80s. So anyway, Johnny and I got in Tai Chi and we did three months. It was an arduous tour. A fan of mine sent me a, a poster of it. Honestly, the gigs, especially compared to 2022, you should see the gigs night after night, like six gigs a week for three months. You worked so cool. hard, yeah. But Johnny and I get up um, every morning and do Tai Chi and we're right into this whole Taoist philosophy and all the rest of it. Anyway... Even Hutch was well-behaved and, you know, because it was such an arduous tour, we just knew we couldn't get into drugs and party on and stuff like that. <laughs> However, Kempsey ourselves was the last gig. I'll stop laughing, Richard. She's right in her wheelhouse, Richard. Right, right this is so me. Yes, I'm, not, I'm loving it. I know, you're making me laugh, so I can't tell <laughs> okay. the story. So what, Tai Chi. <laughs> what used to happen is um, um, Inexcess would go on first and then I'd come on second, you know, there'd be an intermission, then I'd come on second. Yes. And we thought, bugger this, last night of the tour, let's go. So I think um, roadies were sent to Sydney <laughs> to procure lots of um, lots of bad stuff. So Inexcess went on first and by this time we are pretty wasted. I'm sorry to say, I think Michael was under the influence of something. I don't know, um, which is unusual. Unusual. Not. <laughs> yeah. Before I went on, Hutch was in my ear and he's going, Richie, Richie, let's do this. Let's do a brown eye. I'm going, Michael. And I was trying to get on stage. And so I would go on, I'd do my set and for the encore, In Excess would come back on and I would do Stay Young. I think that's the way it worked um, with them. And by this time, Mikey was like, he was flying. And he wanted, he talked my whole band and all of In Excess into doing a brown eye. And so, and we had this pretty timid uh, tour manager who could see what was about to happen. And he was, Neil's freaking out. <laughs> so anyway, the crowd, I, I know, and it was packed, it was packed to the rafters. <laughs> the crowd were yelling more, more, more. And they wanted another encore. And they got it. <laughs> Michael talked 10 musicians into going on stage, back on stage and chucking a brown eye. So the lighting guy had a follow spot. I think <laughs> the first thing to happen, Kirk ran out on stage. You can compare stories. As I recall, <laughs> Kirk ran out on stage naked except for my guitar player's double-breasted jacket. And so the follow spot came on and Kirk just went <laughs> and the crowd just exploded. And then... 
Hutch, Hutch convinced my five musicians and his five musicians to chuck the brown eye. And I went to go and join the band and Michael grabbed me and said, no, no, not us, not us. And he dragged me through the crowd right down to the front of the stage and I'm going, oh, Michael, <laughs> no. And so In Excess and my band are up there doing a brown eye and the, the kids just went wild. I mean, it just, the whole show went through the roof. The tour manager's freaking out and he's going, you fucking assholes. There's police. Literally. literally. The police, was the police involved? Yes, yes. It's all the police and parents chasing us. So we had to scamper out of the out of the venue and rush back to the crappy, crappy motel we'd been staying in. Just gather up anything, throw it in the back of the car, and head back down Highway One. With the police and, and parents behind us. And have you been let back into Kempsey since? I'm glad you asked me that because many years after, um, my then agent was plotting a tour, planning a tour for me from Sydney to Brisbane. And one stage I said, oh, man, that's a really long drive. I mean, surely there's a gig. Why can't we do Kempsey? And my agent just gave me this sour look and he said, oh, you know my nickname is Ralph. Yeah. Oh, Ralph. Oh, why can't you do Kempsey? Why can't anybody do Kempsey? Nobody's played in Kempsey for 30 years, mate. You know? <laughs> what, is that? what do you think that is, Richard? And I went, uh, oh, gee. <laughs> Yeah, you, you and in excess chucking the brown eye. And he reckoned no band has ever played in Kempsey ever since. <laughs> Turned you into that town like Footloose, eh? No one's wanting to dance. Yeah. Oh, oh they, 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 they need to cheer up a bit, don't they? So you're not, they're not on your tour list for this year then? <laughs> I was a support act. Yeah, sure they are, yeah. <laughs> so why do they um, – oh, sorry, I was going to ask you, why do they need making your Ralph? Uh, well, well, because because um, I lived in Europe for six years before I came back, and I was in London for um, four and a half years. Came back here with a South London accent, and I had that really long hair, which is getting back there now. Got my COVID hair, but I mean, I had hair right down my back. And one night, I think it was 1977, and if you've heard of Chuggy. Michael Chug, he was my manager at the time, and the roadies were packing up, and everyone was drunk, including me. And the roadies kept going, hey, Ralph. And I'd keep looking behind me going, who's Ralph? Who are you talking to? And I'd keep going, hey, Ralph, and giggling. Chuggy heard this and decided this is my new nickname. So I turned, it's actually a pretty boring story. <laughs> um, if you don't know, um, Ralph the Hairy English Sheepdog, okay? I had long, shaggy hair <laughs> right down my back, and I still had had a bit of an English accent <laughs> on stage. Uh, I'm sorry, it's pretty boring, but that's now I look I'm, at you and think of an English sheepdog, but you yeah. don't want to think like an English sheepdog. <laughs> There's a bit of a bit of mystery about names because uh, I I think that for our listeners that I know you cleverly appropriated the name Richard and, and cleverly appropriated the name Clapton uh, from two of your heroes uh, for your stage names. I think it reads great. I mean, when I was a kid, I was just like, oh, Dad, is is Richard like the brother of Eric? Uh, yeah. And it was like, no, son, not quite. Oh, okay, uh, it's a good surname. Like, do you like if your name's Clapton? Are you were like a good you know, guitarist or singer, like, you know, like, is that the way it works? <laughs> so, yes. When you got to the surname, I'm very uh, impressed with it. I've got, you know, I've got a bit of that in the 70s, but it, it faded off, you know, the Clapton name faded off um, yeah. by the time we got into the 80s. It's, you know, nobody ever mentions it anymore. Ships is right through Wonderland 
off at 19 to Germany, uh, well, to England and then Germany. I think your visa might have run out, but then you end up in Germany, which, you know, comes up in one of your famous clips for Glory Road, I think. But, uh, you know, I think stuff like that, and relating to In Excess a little bit, uh, I think In Excess, you know, were quite, you know, brave and maybe it was Murphy's influence to get them overseas quite early in their career when they had the energy. Um, You took off overseas and almost sort of informed, you, you know, your songwriting and your craft as a 19, 20-year-old going over to different countries. Tell us a bit about that and how did it inform, you, you know, your career when you came back to Australia? Obviously, I mean, I feel incredibly blessed because if you consider my timeline, I mean, I hit London in 1967. Hmm. So you can imagine what it was like being being a London hippie in 1967. Through- what a time. What a time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fast forward many years and one night um, – Michael and I would go to Jimmy Barnes' place for some sort of soiree, and Michael had been reading the Koran, and he, he went on and on all and the whole drive to Barrel, and he was saying, and he kept going, Richie, you've got to read the Koran. Promise me you'll like it. Yes, because we used to have these intellectual sort of um, conversations a lot. And anyway, we got down to Jimmy's place, and I started in the vodka. I just turned around at one point and went, Mikey, whatever. At least I've seen Jimi Hendrix play. There was a long table and a huge bowl of block. Welcome, Mom. And there was this important journal across the other side of the table. And when I said, Well, whatever, Mikey, at least I see Jimi Hendrix playing, picked up the ball, hurled it at me. I ducked, it went all over the journal. And now you can try try it on with the guacamole because can you believe? I mean, uh, the bands I've seen, I mean, I, I find it hard to believe it myself. But you can, I mean, you know, I saw the Stone Park, saw Blind Faith in Hyde Park. Wow. Or, you know, everybody. I saw the, per- I saw, I saw Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett. That's how oh. old I am. Wow. Oh, gee, Richard, you really are old there. Wise. But you but talk about being in the zeitgeist at the right time. I mean, I, I mean, all those experiences must have just been fantastic, you know, just being there at the time. Mm-hmm. Not hearing it, just you were there. Mm. Yeah, because it, I don't know. I, I so miss those days, and I, I don't know why. No kind of spirit of community, and and oh, I'm finding it hard to articulate. Truly, look, just that late sixties hippie period, mm. um, London or or California, even though I wasn't in California at that time, mm. um, was just so magic. Yeah. It's funny you should mention that. I watched a documentary on Woodstock a couple of nights ago and never really thought about the actual, I've, I've seen performances, but I never thought about what the audience sort of um, feeling was. And it was just a beautiful, um, a beautiful thing. They ran out of food and the local farmers brought food in and instead of them like you know every month themselves eat, eating the food, they were passing it around and drinking and they were in this like you say, it's a different time. You couldn't do that now. 
you like the kids back there and they were given and they looked after one another. I don't think that happens so much now, or maybe, although you've seen it with the Olympics more that everybody's there for each other. So maybe I might be wrong on that, but. No, it's a bit of a change since the sixties, definitely. Yes, and as I just said, um, obviously, being at the age I am, I, I so miss those days. And, and I mean, you know, for me, like a meeting in excess was, was one of the, you know, most seminal moments once in my life. mentioned um, Stay Young, you, you obviously got and sung that with the band. I mean, you know, as a song, I think that uh, still sounds fresh uh, in 2022. Yeah. It's got a little tweak to, you know, the, the time in the year of 81. But um, that song, uh, I think, particularly resonates the lyric, you know, the music, etc. there. In your own career, what do you rate, you know, in terms of your own sort of recording? Are you a, a lyrics guy or a melody guy? What do you, I mean, some of the w- words you've come up with are very evocative, you know, Capricorn and Girls on the Avenue and Deeper Water, they really evoke a, a certain imagery. Um, when you sort of went to work with In Excess, did you help sort of influence that a little bit? Or, you know, you had 15 years, I guess, in the industry before you started producing them. Um, how, how did that sort of connect, you know, your skills with their skills? Um, you're probably aware, I mean, Andrew and Michael really were the team. That was a partnership. So I wouldn't lay claim. I mean, obviously, I'd like to think, Maybe I'd taught them a lot about making a record and stuff. But and and as a producer, producers normally do contribute musical ideas to the act or to the artist. I have always said ever since then that what blew me out about excess, I'd never met anybody like them. It was the most powerful six-man force. Musically, they were so independent. I mean, in a way, I mean, that was so easy to produce. I mean, I was a little daunted by it at first, you know, when they asked me to produce them because I didn't know if I could do it. You know, I mean, I produced my own album prior to that, but I I didn't know whether I could produce these guys. Mm. But they're all so gifted. Gifted, yeah. Every one of the six of them is so gifted. And really, quite frankly, as as their producer, I I sort of just had to wind them up and let them go pretty much. You mentioned you mentioned earlier about the two chords of underneath the colours. I know Andrew has said that song's quite an important forerunner to something like Need You Tonight. It has sort of space and things in it, and it has a certain sort of you know simplicity, but also a minimalist type of sort of sound. But he he cites underneath the colours was being a bit of a forerunner to Need You Tonight. You know, in the way it was it was put together. Do you see a bit of a link on that? Uh, I haven't thought of that. Something Andrew said actually himself, uh, not to us, but in an interview, um, I think it might have been because the album was 40 years old last year and he was interviewed somewhere about it and he, he just yeah. highlighted the song underneath the colours and the spacing of it and the, the you know the simple couple of chords and, and the way it was put together. He felt that there were some parallels there with Nija tonight when he went to record that, which I guess is credit to yourself there. Uh, yeah, well, look, I, I love this, the track underneath the colours because that's a really great 
example of what I'm trying to say about this band. Yeah, because it is just two chords, but really when you put them together, they're such a potent musical force. And, yeah, I mean, there was a bit of cross-pollination of ideas between myself and the band, but I certainly wouldn't take credit. Hmm. Um, perhaps in, in a way um, to come back at you with what you asked about my lyric writing, um, yes, I regard myself – well, I regard myself as a lyricist um, because I've been writing poetry ever since school. The master, the English master I had at school – was an incredible. It, it, um, his name was Richard Werrett. Yeah, was the, li- the late Richard Werrett. He went on to quite success in his own career, didn't he? Uh, and yeah, that was the only time he taught. He only taught for five, six years, oh, and fortunately, yeah. mm. so he groomed me in that way. And then many years later, I'd like to think I had this sort of pretty unique affinity with Michael, because as I'm sure you'd realise, Michael's very literate and pretty intellectual. Mm-hmm. I think because of my youth with Richard Werrick, so I could keep up with him. <laughs> like, yeah. Michael was pretty, um, he was, yeah, pretty high-level intellectual. He seemed a, a real sort of student of life and a real fascination. You talked about the Quran earlier. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's some, I mean, for someone there in the in 20s to be, you know, usurped by reading that and probably not for the sake of wanting to convert, but just because he was interested, I think. He seemed to be an interested person yeah. as, well, as well as interesting. Mm. And, and see, Michael was into Anais Nin and writers like that, and there wasn't really anybody else he could talk to about Anais Nin or Jean-Paul Sartre mm. and Camus, etc. And um, as I said, he was very literate, and I think quite often he just he, he just wanted somebody to talk to on his level. Uh, you know, I'm not being snobbish about it. I'm not being like no. intellectual. No. Um, you know, obviously, I feel blessed that I had, had this relationship with Michael for all that time. So, getting back to my lyric writing, etc., I'm a great admirer of Michael's lyric writing. Now, I don't know. Possibly, Michael may have picked up things from me about the method, because his method of lyric writing was quite akin to not not. All of my lyric writing. I mean, look, one thing Michael and I had in common, like when, when we did Stay Young, I, I had them in a, doing pre-production in a rehearsal place in Sydney. Um, and Michael was obviously late. And Andrew is coming up with this, oh, no, no, you know, that riff thing. Um, and because I'd, I'd been a solo writer all my life, I just couldn't believe that these catalysts. Mm. It's like I'm sitting here with Andrew and going, yeah, Andy, and, uh, and I don't know, I think Johnny got up and started playing drums and this whole song just, uh, you know, <laughs> came out of the heavens pretty much. And getting back to Michael, Michael turned up late. He'd been at dinner with his friends as usual and he comes in pretty wasted. Anyway, if you know what a blurb is, that's an advertising agency term, I do have that in common with Michael. You know, you sing a blurb. You just come up with really great musical um, uh, bed and just seeing anything comes in your head over the top of it. It's the best way to to get great phonetics. Yes. Well, yeah, it's 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 a great word you use there, phonetics. I think we've we've remember that musical lyrical uh, vocal coach who came on and he, he well he didn't come on our show, but he did a nine minute excerpt on Michael at Wembley and highlighted his vocal range. And his, so good. 
Mm. His enunciation of words and his phonetic, you know, delivery, which a song like Mystify, I think, uh, you know, really highlights it in there. But, you know, a bit like yourself, I mean, sometimes people interpret your lyrics one way on a song, but, you know, they're a little bit deeper than that and they're not as obvious. And I think sometimes with Michael, up until the end where maybe he was more literal with his lyrics, there was, you know, there was a sort of an ability to interpret his lyrics the way you wanted to. They weren't as obvious as some artists. Did you agree with that at all, Richard? Uh, Yeah, I I think Michael was an extremely advanced um, lyric writer. Yeah. Um, And I don't know if it's fair to say that I think he's been rather undervalued and underappreciated. Yep. Because maybe people haven't taken enough time to really listen to what he was doing. And honestly, his his work is really remarkable. But he took a lot from his um, readings. I know that he used to take a lot of lyrics from them, not literally from them, but just like mystify some of those lyrics. He just picks out certain words and then that's it. But you can just, can just sort of you know where you need to be for that part of the song. Um, and I think it was actually from when he had time when he was a kid in um, Hong Kong as well that he actually picked a lot of that up. Um, yeah. See, there's a real art to, to writing songs like that. Mm. Where I, look, a couple of the other guys and I really like Steely Dan. Yeah. What we like about Steely Dan, they're using the words as a musical instrument. Mm. So with Michael and with Steely Dan, it's, it, it can be a bit William Burroughs. It's like, what the hell was that about? You know, mm. what was that What was that lyric about? Yeah. What I'm trying to say about phonetics is, is um, just certain words. That, you know, if you can use certain words like that, it just – enhances and enforces the music. Yeah, it definitely elevates. And I think, um, you know, Frank Sinatra, you know, was a great interpreter of other people's words and songwriting and seemed to be able to, you know, deliver a a fantastic sort of enunciation of words and things. I always felt like with Michael that uh, his good looks seemed to get in the way of the critics sometimes and they didn't look beneath the surface of the artistry of the songwriting. And we've chatted to Mark Opitz a lot recently and he, he did feel that, you know, obviously when Michael passed on to the next world that uh, Andrew really struggled a bit just in terms of having that sounding board and that lyrical uh, partnership, which, which, which they were. And yeah, so you were sort of there in those infancy days. Um, yeah. You know, in, in a way, I mean, sometimes that musical partnership was a bit myopic in some ways, but it was good because whether you're aware of it or not, I mean, like, like, like I said earlier, Johnny and I lived together for quite a bit of the eighties and we got into a, a lot of writing and I think it was good for Johnny because I think Johnny, um, oh, you can tell me how many, how many songs did Johnny get on in excess? It wasn't well, a lot, was it? Well, he, he, he was a bit like the George Harrison of the band as the band sort of grew longer. He got more material at the end. So, you know, yeah. Here and the gift, and um, you know, uh, deepest red, and some of these tracks. You know, he 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 really got more of a forum, you know, at the end to get some tracks not only on but as singles as well. Yeah. 
So Johnny and I shared the same drum machine. It was called a Roland R8. Anyway, I think they were touring the States. So I don't know. So Johnny used to use the drum machine and, and with the programs, you just leave the programs in there. You'd save them and um, you could recall them. Um, and anyway, so Johnny had been away for weeks and I was sitting there, I was writing songs and stuff. When they got back, you know, one of the first things Johnny said is like, so play me some new songs. I went, yeah, mate, I've got this one. And I, man, the, the, you want to hear the feel of this, Johnny, it's great. And I played it to him. It's me on acoustic guitar playing along with the drum machine. Johnny looks at me and goes, Richie, you dick. You know what that is? It's what you need, idiot. I went, oh, oh sorry. <laughs> <laughs> were, you, were, you, were, you doing a bit of a, were you doing a George Harrison, My Sweet Lord, you didn't realise? No, I didn't realise. <laughs> that was the actual drum pattern. pattern. Yeah, he, t- he picked up his pattern because they were sharing the same drum machine. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's what the show did. <laughs> The, the great songs when I was about 15, 16 that I really love to this day was Glory Road. And uh, John obviously produced that album. Uh, now, he was 26 at the time. It was probably done the same year that Kit came out. So um, was that around a time you guys were living together and quite close? Um, yeah. God, I really miss those days. <laughs> Rod Muir, who owned Triple M, um, had taken me under his wing, which is a whole other story. Sorry, who was that? Rod Muir. He owned um, the whole Triple N network. And Rod had taken me under his wing because Rod had a, had this thing that he just felt that I was, you know, the modern-day Banjo Patterson, you know, equivalent thereof. Anyway, they were pretty wild days, and that's why at the start of the interview I said we were referring to the Rat Pack. The Rat Pack was in excess, Jimmy Barnes and me. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Sorry, I was thinking of the Rat Pack. I was thinking, where is he going with that one? Oh, yeah. oh, okay. I reckon we had a better Rat Pack. You, you did. <laughs> mm. So they were pretty wild times, and um, you'd have to pay me a lot of money for me to go into details here. Or get you drunk. Grand. Nation, you know, whatever. <laughs> Every night was party night. And uh, so one fateful night, um, it was Johnny, Jimmy Barnes, can't remember who else was in the room at, at, at Rod's place. And Rod was going on and on and Rod would get really frustrated that my career <coughs> had not done what, you know, he expected it would do. And so everyone's pretty out of it. And Johnny and Jimmy just get into Rod's ear and goes, and say, well, Rod, Rod, do an album with Richie, you know. Why don't, why don't you bankroll an album with Richie? And by come midnight, Rod goes, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. So what do we do? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, well, I mean, Johnny and I were just best friends at that stage, so mm. it was um, a no-brainer for Johnny to produce it. I Didn't I get so lucky? We started out in Sydney at Rhinoceros, which is where we all did most of our albums. And then um, Chris Thomas had to get the ba- in excess over to Paris uh, to finish off Kid. And um, so everybody, because at the stage I was being managed by MMA as well, 
geez, you can't leave Richard behind. <laughs> so I got to go to Paris for a couple of months. Oh, fantastic. Can't break the rat pack up. No, you can't break the rat pack up. No. I'm so jealous. I wish I'd been there. <laughs> so when, you went, when you went to Paris, did you did John work on your album there at the same time in Paris? Or Yeah. Yeah, as yeah. well as the King um, Yeah, because um, he'd been working on Glory Road. Because see, this this is also back in the day where albums used to take months. Yeah, I'm not going to beat around the bush. Glory Road cost a fortune, but Rod Rod had it, had, could afford it. Yeah, and so he did. We're staying at the Champs Albany, obviously the Tuileries in Paris, and um, I'm just I'm I'm trying to filter through stories I'll give you and other stories. <laughs> <laughs> Give us your best material, Richard. I'm very, I'm very good at editing, Richard, uh, yeah, if you want to just let go. No. Yes. Yes, you can. I'm trying to think about it because, honestly, some of the shenanigans we got up to and because Rod owned Triple M, why I'm trying to filter through it <laughs> is I can get shy, gun shy, and go, no, 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 I'm not telling you that, and then go, yes, but Richard, it was on the news on Triple M. There you go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the world knows already. All right, here's a tidbit. Michael, My, Michael Hutchins and Richie Clapton naked and handcuffed to a chair in Paris. Ah, <laughs> This is Sheila from Birmingham, Alabama. Hey, this is Susan from Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, this is Maiti from Montreal, Canada. This is Suzanne from Los Angeles, California. And that's a wrap. How are we doing that? How are you doing? Very good. I, I, we get this little high and a buzz when we come off these interviews, don't we, Bea? Mm, mm, yeah, no, he's... There he is, you know, in his, his um, Tokyo T-shirt. That was quite yeah. cute what he was telling us. I don't know if that got to air, actually. He's still got it. He's very bright, isn't he? He's a bit of a like, – he knows his stuff. Well, look, he's, he's what you would call a person who lived it, you know. He mm. was there, lived it, experienced, got through it all. And uh, for a guy in his early 70s, he's still got the fire in the belly to get out and play music. And we look forward to sort of, I guess, next week's sort of episode where we dive a bit deeper into – all the things we've discussed today with a few more uh, little sort of anecdotes as well. Yes, there is some more stuff coming, everybody. Very interesting. But, um, yeah, so if, what have we got on our desk at the moment? We've still got the auction going, as well, I would say. Well, before there, it's engagement oh. time. Oh, all right then. Okay. All right, B, your big part of the week, fan engagement, uh, far away as I nasally get, try to get through this episode. I know, you're suffering so much. Can you, <laughs> can you mute yourself and have a good I sniff, shall. please? I yes, shall. go, please. <laughs> I don't want to hear any more sniffing. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Fan engagement. I've... I think I've mentioned this to you all before, but there's a great Facebook page which has got 33,000 uh, members. Huge, huge. And it's called Australia Music. Absolute gold it is. It's got some really good admin people on there that um, really engage with all the fans. So I put a post out <laughs> and I asked it, um, what would you be your favourite in excess lyric? And could you name it or, or write it out? And I've got some oh, absolute gorgeous ones. Really, really good. Actually, we had a laugh with Paul Jolie because he says we should actually introduce a new segment, um, which is called singing your song um, wrong. 
song. Um, so misinterpreting the lyrics, I think we could um, have a go at that one. That would be quite funny. You know, there's a word for that, Mondegrin. Mondegrammed. Mondegrin. Mondegrin, yeah, it's when you mis- mistake a lyric. Okay, well, I think we might have to start having a little segment of that yeah. because um, this guy says, I will, I will make wine from your blood. I says, mate, I think you might have got that one a little bit wrong there. <laughs> well, you probably know the very famous UK comedian, Peter Kay. I'd, oh, God, he's brilliant. He does a very funny stand-up one where he gets the lyrics wrong, so we might post that out on our platforms, but it's very, very funny. I love that guy. He talks about his dad. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. Anyway, going back to this um, lyrics that I did. Yeah. So I've got a lot of people hopefully listening to the show. So I said that I'd give a big shout out. So um, I've got a list. <laughs> I'll have, I want to firstly say hello to Julie. She says that she listens to us in the car every week and she's been listening to us from near enough day, day dot. Um, and then we're going to say hello to Douglas, D, Cheryl, Barry, Elder, Mark, Damien, Aaron, and Leanne. Also, Daniel Parson had a tattoo of dancing on the jetty in Chinese symbols down his back. So he sent me a photo of that. Awesome. Who else we've got? We've got Jolene, Jeff, John, um, DB, Jason, Natalie, Roxanne, Chad, Annette, and Brett. Brett also mentioned that he worked with InXS at a sound check at Perth Entertainment. So hello to Brett. He was cool. Um, we've got um, Shane, Cheryl, Anthony, and also want to give a shout out to John Rawood. I hope you're listening, mate, because you really annoyed me a little bit because you said, yeah, he did. He, 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 he oh. put out his lyrics <laughs> and he said, he said, um, he says, um, I like your post, he says, but I'm not interested in you promoting your um, podcast. And I went, ouch, that's not nice. But anyway, hello, John, I bet you're listening. <laughs> anyway, there's another gorgeous man called Corey and he's from Grafton, which is only a couple of K up the road. And he and I agreed that Michael was a god, a naughty one at that. So hello to all our new In Excess listeners. Well, I was thinking about that the tattoo earlier. Uh, just as well, he wasn't getting kissed the dirt falling Probably down the mountain no. to the tattoo on him. It might not fit. Uh, so, <laughs> all right. Um, I guess coming to the auctions, B, we put up a bit of an auction prize. This is a pretty special one. We've got double signatures from both Mark and Andrew Farris on the Wembley gig, which is a fantastic one. And it's mm-hmm. signed on the inside of the well, the booklet cover and on the inside mm-hmm. of the CD, actual uh, disc itself. We're tracking along with this particular auction. I guess we're probably coming close to its uh, yeah. conclusion as the time yeah, we release yeah. this. We're um, it's tracking got in real quite time. a lot of followers. I think we were up to around about $250 at this point. So, yeah, thank you. Well, that's a, that's a yeah. steal if you can get it at a cheap price. And look, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, we'd love the more money, the better, you know, for everything mm-hmm. there. But if you can get something at a stealing price of that, just remember we had, a, I sent a message yeah. that the vinyl signal go out at about 800 bucks. So it may have a little surge towards the end. Keep bidding away. You will be getting a collector's item. That's right. That's right. Um, so, yeah. So thank you for all the bidders out there and the watchers. There'll be some other things coming out very soon as well. <laughs>
Now, as we said earlier, we're going to go into next week's episode, part two with Richard, but I thought in light of uh, our tributes on going out today, we would like to do a little bit of a tribute to Glenn Wheatley today, and I'd also like to have a sort of bit of a tribute from a friend to a friend. So I think if Mark Opitz was with us right now, he would be quite a fan of this song going out as our exit song. The Masters of Premises had that first massive hit, you know, Be Who You Want to Be, and It's Because I Love You, that song we played at the start. Had a second massive hit that is still getting uh, radio play these days. And the song is about the radio. And Glenn Wheatley is responsible largely for FM radio in Australia. So we're going to go out with one of their bigger hits as well. And the song is actually called Turn Up the Radio. Yeah. Which in excess, there's a link here, in excess considered putting out instead of good times. Yes. So, That's where I hear it, yeah. So we think there's a few tie-ins here playing this song as an exit there. So this is a bit of a, we think a song from Mark uh, to Glenn, and we think it's a song that, uh, you know, as I said, acknowledgement of mm. his career. Gone too soon, in excess, love this song. Uh, as I said, they've probably played it live, but also they probably wanted to record it, but I think they got talked into good times. But either way, Turn Up Your Radio is a great song with a great hook. So we're going to go out today and say, Valet Glenn, uh, thank you listeners for checking in. It's goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from B. Goodbye, everybody. Listen to the music now, turn